And we're really going to be beginning in verse 18. I'm going to reference verse 12, but we're going to be in the last part of 1 Peter 2. If you're visiting, that's the text there on the bulletin, so you can just follow there if you'd like. I think I should have prayed for coughing. A lot of coughing this morning. Hang in there. Now, a question that I was asked, I think pretty early on, when I became a Christian, I became a Christian as best I recall in 10th grade. Certainly, that's when I discerned God working in my life. And um, I remember someone asking me, Hey, Brian, what do you deserve from God? And I, I can't remember exactly how I answered, but I think what I said was, thinking, thinking that this was the right answer that the person was looking for, nothing. I deserve nothing from God. And now I can't recount that one clearly, but I know that just even in my own ministry as a, as a pastor, I have asked, maybe some of you in this room, that question, if, if God gave you what you deserve, what would He give you? Or just maybe just what do you deserve from God? And it's pretty, pretty often when I ask that question, the answer is nothing. Now, I, 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 me throwing this out is not to script you to say something that you don't believe or, you know, the next time you're asked that, here's what you should say. But, it, but it's this. If our answer to that question, what, what do you deserve from God, is nothing, it means that there is something that we're missing. And it's something that Peter is wanting us to see for this reason. If you're visiting, we're studying through this New Testament letter by the Apostle Peter, 1 Peter. And where we've been the last few weeks is him developing the fact that we Christians, not just human beings in general, but Christians, they're the people of God. They're a holy nation, and not an ethnic nation, or not a nation with boundaries, but a nation as Israel was a nation. It was the special people of God. It was different than all the other peoples of the earth. It's a kingdom. It's a kingdom of priests. And, and that sounds cool, and that sounds very biblical, but, but he starts unpacking, all right, so what does that mean in real life? like living in a nation where the leaders may or may not acknowledge those realities and may be very hard to be under. What does it mean in a family? We're going to be looking at that next week. But here it's, what does that mean in the workplace? And, and here's the thing I want you to think about before we read the text. If our answer to what do you deserve from God is nothing, it means that we are missing something that has the potential if we'll see it, and if it really will get in our bones, that would enable us to live like a people who are different, like priests in an extremely difficult work environment. In fact, maybe in a toxic work environment. What does Peter want us to see? All right, First Peter 2. I'm going to reference verse 12 as in some ways being kind of an overarching thought, and then pick up with verse 18 where he's fleshing this out. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds 
and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last summer, uh, there was a piece in Time magazine about what they called workplace bullying. This ran last summer. Here's, what, here's how the article begins. There are some very important things they don't tell you on career day. Chief among them is that there is a good chance that at some point during your working adult life, you will have an abusive boss, the kind who uses his or her, or her authority to torment subordinates. Bullying bosses scream, often with the goal of humiliating. They write up false evaluations to put good workers' jobs at risk. Some are serial bullies targeting one worker and, when he or she is gone, moving on to their next victim. Worker abuse is a widespread problem. In a 2007 Zogby poll, 37% of American adults said they had been bullied at work. And most of it, here's the thing, most of it is perfectly legal. Workers who are abused based on their membership in a protected class, race, nationality, or religion, among others, can sue under civil rights laws, but the law generally does not protect against plain old viciousness. The last thing this article says, and it's you know, almost discouraging, it says there are reasons workplace bullying may be getting worse now, including the bad economy. In good times, abused workers can simply walk out on a job if they are being mistreated, but, and, and you know where this is going, but with unemployment at around 9.5% as of this writing, and five job seekers for every available job, many employees feel that they have no choice but to stay put. Now, here's the thing. I, this, this may or may not be your situation. I, I would certainly hope that it's not. 
But for a lot of people, it is. And it may be that if it's not now, it's going to be later. And I think the article makes an, a very relevant point, is that when jobs are scarce, when there's more fear about if I let go of this one and try to get something else, the fear of getting something else, it means you're more likely to experience this. Now, that's not a new problem. That is as old as work and sin and bosses. The text that we just read from First Peter, it, it, it uses the word gracious twice. We're going we're to look at that more closely in just a second. But here's the thing. Either if you're in that situation or if you end up in that situation and you are part of the people of God, you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are one of these priests of the Lord, you're either going to extend grace or you're not. And you know, grace is one of those churchy words. It's a Bible word. And what that might sound like to you is just niceness. You're either going to be nice or you're not going to be nice. And we need to be nice, so go be nice. But Peter is given something that is so, it's, it, it is so much more substantive than that. That's kind of like Kool-Aid, and he's offering red meat. And it's this, grace is something that it, it's, it's not cowardly, it is strong, but it's able to submit. And what does that mean? And here, here's what I want to look at, two things. It's the actions of grace in this toxic work environment and the provision of grace. Right? The actions of grace and the provision of grace. What, what are the particulars of what Peter is saying grace would look like in that workplace? What would it do? Because remember in verse 12, he's talking about live in such a way that people who have no interest in Jesus, they can see your life and just looking at you, even though they're prone to say that you're an oddball, you're weird, you're, you're, you're dumb for believing in Jesus, that they finally, they have to give glory to God because you are unique. You are distinct. All right, first off, what's the setting? Just kind of, let's set the stage. Verse 18, servants. Now, when Peter's writing, that's not a metaphor. I mean, he would be thinking of people who are actually servants, actually slaves in these congregations who receive this letter as it makes its way around. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust or unfair. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly, unfairly. So here's the setting. Because I want it to go from... I mean, I want it to sound Bible-ish, of course. But I, I want this to sound like how you talk and think. First off, there's unfairness. When you hear the word unjust, it sounds more like a Bible quote, when you hear unfair, that sounds like what drives us crazy. And that's what it's talking about. There's unfairness. And did you catch in 19, it says sorrows. That it's not just, the, you know, it's not just the sense of, yeah, I've got a wacky supervisor, but, pff, you know. I, I give my supervisor 100% of me when I'm there, and I give him or her 0% when I walk out the door. It, no, this is now affecting quality of life because you are sad. You have sorrow. 
And probably your family feels it as you're sorrowful, you're sad. If you have family, they see it, they feel it. They watch you walk in the door. They see you dread leaving. All right, that's the setting. What's the action? Verse 18, be subject to your masters. And again, and this, is going to, this came up last week talking about the governing authorities, the state, and it's going to come up next week talking about roles in the family and in marriage. But again, Peter is saying this, don't just be subject to that kind of master. Be submissive to that kind of master. That verb is, Greek verbs translated both ways in the New Testament. But do it with respect. It's not with the clenched fist or the fingers crossed behind your back or the bit lower lip. But it is to be submissive, to be sub, uh, subject to with respect. When he says in verse 20, do good, that's what he means. It's That's the doing of good. Uh... That's a tall order if you've ever had an awful boss or an awful supervisor. And then Peter says this, and he says it not just once, he says it twice. Look in verse 19. He says, For this is a gracious thing when you do this. And then look in verse 20. If when you do good and suffer for it, he says, Now if you get servants, if you're beaten for doing bad or being evil, no, that, that's that's... I don't want you to be beaten. But no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you positively do good and you're punished for that. You suffer unfairly for that. You're sad about your treatment for that. Verse 20. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing. Now that phrase, this is a gracious thing. How does that strike you? Because the way, that could, the way that might sound to your ears is Peter saying, you know what, when you're getting the shaft, but you hang in there with it, good for you. Good Way to take the high road. That's a noble thing that you're doing right there, little buddy. In the Greek, it do, it, it, and I don't want, want you to be you know, doubtful of the translation. It's a good translation, but what it literally says is not, this is a gracious thing. It says, when you suffer unfairly, but you submit to it and you respect the source of the suffering, it says in Greek twice, this is grace. Now, why is that so important? And I've mentioned this before. In fact, I think I've done it while I've been at Downtown Prez. I have defined grace in terms of that it's favor, it's favorable treatment in the absence of merit. And at one level, that's true. But that is not a great definition. Biblically, grace, it's not just favor in the absence of merit. It's favor in the presence of demerit. It's favor in the presence of demerit. It's not just, hey, I just met you, you've never done anything for me, but here's $100. It's $100 to the person who punched you in the face. That's grace. This is grace. Now, let's go back to that question about what do you deserve from from God? If God looked at how 
we have no merit to present to Him. And He gave us nothing. That rather than punish that, He gave us nothing. That would be mercy. But what is grace? Grace is God looking at people who don't just have a blank chalkboard. It's not like, oh, I ha- here's my chalkboard, but I don't have all these good works written on it. It's just empty. Oh, no, no, no. No. Here is my chalkboard, and all of my life is all this evil. All of my life is all these particular ways that I didn't love you, and I didn't love people. I didn't take care of those around me. So, so here it is. And in the face of that, not only not to punish, but to give favor. That's grace. And Peter is saying something very richly biblical. That grace is not to be under a bad boss or a bad supervisor. To be in a toxic work environment. Grace is not just the absence of retaliation. The absence of undermining. Yeah, don't retaliate and don't undermine. But grace would be to be subject to it respectfully. That would, be, that would be grace. Favor in the presence of demerit. Not just the absence of merit. You know, um, and I want you to think about it this way. It's funny how phrases, <clears throat> and I think through popular culture, phrases can just catch on and just become an epidemic so quickly. A phrase that I don't remember hearing anyone say 10 years ago. Maybe I was in awe. I just didn't hear it. But I don't remember 10 years ago people saying this with the frequency that they do now. The phrase is, you know what? I'm done. It's kind of like the quintessential reality TV show phrase, you know? Because to have a really good reality TV show, you've got to have just moments of interpersonal friction and crisis. You know, whether it's like the repo people that go get cars or cake wars or whatever it is, that just things have come to a head and there's just meltdown in the kitchen or whatever. And, you know, of course, there's camera crew there too. And finally somebody says, you know what? I'm done. That's, I mean, this is why we created the television. I want you to think about the verb endure. This came up twice in our passage. Verse 19. For this, I'm going to just go literally. For this is grace, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unfairly. Verse 20. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is grace in the sight of God. Do you know what enduring is? It's the opposite of I'm done. To endure is to say, I'm not done. I'm not leaving. I am being treated unfairly. It is unjust. I think my work, I think my job description is being violated. I think that there is an absolute disconnect between the work I do and the benefit that I receive from it. It's unfair. It's unjust. It makes me sad. It affects my family. I am not done. And then to up the ante, what does verse 21 say? 
to this you have been called. If you receive a call, what does that presuppose? There's a caller. Who's the caller? Who calls us into this? Verse 19, this is grace when mindful of God, one endures. Last of verse 20, this is grace in the sight of God. And here's how real life this is. This means if, if you have an authority figure in your workplace, boss, supervisor, whatever, you may be under harshness. You may be under bullying. You may be under yelling and workplace drama. And it may be not just the, the presence, but the, the absences too. The absence of gratitude. He or she gets the credit for this work that I and my peers do, but they get the credit and we don't. And, we, and we're not thanked. It's the absence of, of gratitude. It's the absence of encouragement. You don't motivate people through discouragement. You motivate people through encouragement, but you're not receiving it. It's the absence of reward. The absence of reward. That, that It seems that my responsibilities are upped, that they inch up all the time, that they have now exceeded the bounds of the job description that I agreed to when I was hired, and I have to do more and more and more. But my salary does not reflect that at all. Or the benefits I receive don't reflect that at all. I mean, understand, please, when Peter is writing, he's not even talking about a workplace with central air and heat and overhead lighting, you know, and OSHA checking up on it every so often. federally mandated benefit, anything like that. He is speaking to slaves. He is speaking to actual servants. This is a tall order. To this you've been called, to be subject with respect. How do you do that? And I think this is where we've got to hear, if I'm going to do that, I, I need the resources. Because <laughs> this is just about to polish me off. What is the provision of grace? First off this, we have the ultimate example of what this looks like. Where do you get that? Start in verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you what? An example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly or fairly. Let, let's put it this way. When you read the Gospels, and if you've never read the Gospels, I would love for you to read the Gospels. So let's say when you read the Gospels, if you read the Gospels, if you watch how Jesus actually lived, how he's giving his life away to the people of Judea. Not just with His teaching, which was unbelievable, which people said they'd never heard anything like it, but He must have single-handedly almost wiped out disease in certain towns and regions. 
with, with no strings attached, no expectations of, well, I'll heal you, I'll heal your child if you come follow me and promise to believe in me. He just did it freely. He did it for years. He did it publicly. His life was so watertight that no one could come up with a real accusation against him. And they finally beat him to a pulp, punched him, spit on him, hit his head with a reed and a staff, mocked him, made fun of him, flogged him with a Roman scourging, finally crucify him. And in a sense, it's as if Peter is saying, if you know that and you read that, about what happened, and the more your heart is drawn to Him, and the more you see Him treated with abuse, and you're wanting to say, those people need to die. Those people ought to be destroyed. It's as if Jesus is turning and saying, wait a second. That is not my way. These are the people that I came to minister to. These are the people that I came to pray for to the point that when they are stretching out my arms to spike it to a beam of wood, I will pray for those individuals in particular. That is the example. When the people are coming with false charges, and I'll tell you that I feel like every sermon I'm telling you my pathologies up here, but I mean, I, I feel like as I get older, when I know that I'm right about something. I don't mean I think I'm right. When I know I'm right, it's maddening to be told that I'm wrong. And you feel it too. You feel it. I think you'll feel it more the older you get. Even to the ripe old age of 43. Kidding, guys. Okay, I'm kidding. You'll feel it. Jesus was always right. And I don't mean in an arrogant, cocky way. His life, His words, His ethics, His compassion, His thinking, His reasoning, it was this seamless, watertight, perfect, fully-orbed whole. All the accusations were lies. And if your heart is drawn to Him, you want to go, those guys are liars! They are liars. And he's subject to them. In Matthew 20, do you know this? In Matthew 23, he tells the people of Judea, do not do what the Pharisees do. Do not follow their example, but do submit yourselves to their teaching. Follow me in being subject to who God puts in positions of authority. If all we had was an example, it would be discouraging. Because we can't do this. We don't do this. What else has He given us? He's given us the perfect example. He's given us forgiveness. Look in verse 24. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Uh, You heard Isaiah 53 cited earlier in the service. Any commentary that you look at about 1 Peter in this passage will talk about Peter 
is just drawing from here and there from Isaiah 53 as he's making this application to servants. Why is that important? There are passages in Isaiah that are called the servant songs. There's this character that keeps showing up, and he's God's servant, and he does these things that only God's servant can do. And he's even been called the suffering servant. And guess who it is? These are prophecies about the coming of Jesus Christ. And isn't it interesting that as Peter is making applications about suffering, and he's making applications to servants in particular, guess who he's citing? Isaiah. About the suffering servant. And what does he say? It says that when he finally was wounded, when he's finally pierced for our transgressions, when he's covered with stripes, our sins were forgiven. He bore the curse that we deserve. What? How, why is that relevant to my crummy work environment? Well, number one, the gospel is always important. But one particular way is that if you really have a hateful boss or a hateful supervisor, there is one advantage. You will now feel how sinful you can be. Because if you've ever had a true bully as an authority over you, and believe me when I say I'm not trying to be funny, you will begin to imagine, what if he or she died? What would it be like if I had something to do with that? You'll fantasize about, what if the tables turn and instead of them shouting, what if I were doing the shouting? And what might I say? Now, do you understand at that point what is going on in our hearts? I can't stand working for this person. They're hateful, and it bothers me so much that I hate them. It's bad to be hateful. It makes me so mad, it's so bad that I hate them. Maybe we're getting a window into who we are and the need of cleansing and redemption. But the last thing is this. Okay, he gives us an example. He gives us forgiveness but one other thing, because if you have ever been under a bully, you know what can happen? You can start to believe what he or she says about you. You can begin to believe that these chew-out sessions and these snarky memos and passive-aggressive emails, that all those things that are being said about you are true. And you know what Peter says? And this is so great, because he and Paul, they are so on the same page about so many, th I mean, everything really. But th this sounds like the Apostle Paul. He says in verse 24, Christ bore our sins on His body. And, why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And this is what the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans 6, that in some way that we don't fully understand, if you are in Christ, you're united to Him. It's a mystery. It, 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 theologians have poured over this for 2,000 years. You're in Christ so much that what happened to Him happens to you. And that means that when He died on that cross, the old you died. And when He rose from the tomb, a new you walked out with Him. And do you know what that means? That means that you have got this amazing biblical, theological 
arsenal inside of you to say to yourself when you need it, I am not what my boss says I am. Nor am I what I say I am. I am what God says I am. And He says that I am a new creature in Christ Jesus. He says I am clean. He says I am the people of God. He says I am part of the kingdom of priests. He says I am His adopted child. I may keep this job. I may lose this job. But that's what I am. If my boss doesn't like certain things about me, honestly, he or she doesn't know the half of it. And God knows them all, and the old me died. The new me is a new creation. That's what we have. And that doesn't necessarily make it easy, but that is strength. Let me end with this. Verse 25 says this, You were straying like sheep, and that's, that's straight out of Isaiah 53, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Um, in, in the King James, overseer is translated bishop. It's the word episkopos. And I want you to think about this. It, in Presbyterianism, we don't have bishops. We don't have archbishops. We don't have a pope. And don't be nervous about this comment, but sometimes I kind of wish we did when I, when I serve on committees. I was at a committee meeting this past week, and, and there was an issue on the table, two sides to the issue. I love people on both sides of it dearly. And you know what? We've got to struggle through it. I am convinced of our kind of church government but, man, wouldn't it be great if there was just one definitive person where you can say, would you, would you just make the call on this? If you long for that, you know what? That's a good longing. It's just that it can't be anyone on earth. But as you suffer, whether it's in your family or injustice in the workplace or injustice in our culture or from our government, if you long for there to be one person to be the definitive shepherd, the definitive bishop, the definitive elder, as it's going to say in chapter 5. Friends, we have one. It's Jesus. And as the one who went before us has shown, it says, follow in His footsteps, entrust yourself to Him. Do not take the way of retaliation. That is not the way of Jesus. Entrust yourself to one who at the end, fully, visibly, globally, judges fairly. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, it is, it is suffering when we wait. It's suffering when we wait for resolution or change, deliverance in a work environment that is harsh, that's bullying, that's ungrateful, that's toxic. 
We pray, Father, for brothers and sisters in this room who are are experiencing that right now. Lift them up. Lift them up and let them see one who has gone before them to take our sins and to set the example to bury and crucify the old us that a new one might rise. Lord, we pray that we would be distinct, that we would do good, not for our glory, but for your glory in Greenville and beyond. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.